You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. 2 Samuel 19. 2 Samuel 19. Go ahead and get there. Um, We are nearing the end of this Life of David series. So... For a long time, we've been going through God's Word. We've been looking at the life of David. And so if you've been here for a lot of that, if you've stuck with us through that, thank you. We are almost done. As a matter of fact, I think next week is the last sermon in our Life of David series. And so if you haven't been here very much or maybe you've missed some, a great way to always catch up with us is our podcast. So we podcast the sermon on iTunes. usually goes up every Sunday night. It's a great way to get caught up on stuff. We also have videos of the sermon at our website, BethelBible.com. So if you've ever been out a few weeks and you're thinking, man, am I really going to drop in the middle of this series? That's a great way to get caught up. And so I want to encourage you uh, to do that. Now, if you weren't here last week, I do want to kind of set up what we're talking about, what we're going to, to look at here at the end of the life of David. Here's the deal. The Old Testament... Uh, doesn't have a lot of commentary or as much commentary as we might sometimes want. So when you read the New Testament, a lot of times, uh, there's all kinds of stuff, especially in the middle of the New Testament, what we call the letters or the epistles. In the New Testament, when you read it, a lot of times you have this kind of third-person dialogue or, or monologue really going where you're, you're hearing Scripture and then, you know, Paul or somebody is helping you understand this is what this means and this is how you apply this or watch out for this, or this is why God is great, or this is what God is doing. But the Old Testament doesn't have near as much of that. So sometimes you go read the Old Testament and you think, you know, this is good. There's like good guys and bad guys and love and betrayal and war and blood and guts. Like it's, it'd be a great TV show. The Old Testament would be a great TV show. You know, it'd be on HBO and you'd love it, right? But sometimes you read the Old Testament and it's hard to know, well, what do I do with this? And in the life of David, this series has been like that. I will tell you that Ross and Eric at our downtown campus and Mark at our White House campus, I mean, they have struggled through this. They've done a great job because sometimes it's just a story that they have to kind of pray, God, would you help us to kind of find out what's going on? And so the way you do that, in case you've ever thought that, maybe you thought, man, I don't read a lot of Old Testament. The the best way to read the Old Testament is to read it slow. If you read the Old Testament slowly, where you really do try to focus on what's going on, what's actually going on right here in the story I'm reading. If you'll do that, I believe that God will bless that. I believe he'll bless it today. That if we'll read slow, if we'll... Sometimes you've got to read a little bit before and sometimes a little after. Sometimes you might have to read it twice. Sometimes read it three times. But I believe that God will give us wisdom. I believe he's going to do that today. So 2 Samuel 19 has been unbelievably challenging and convicting to me personally, okay? And so I've read it a bunch, and it is still working on me, okay? So let me tell you where we are. So if you were here last week, you're going to know this, but if you weren't, let me just give you some context. So we are about to find out what happens at the end of the Absalom saga, okay? So David has this son, Absalom, that for many, many Sundays we've been talking about how Absalom rebels against his father. So Absalom uh, begins to try to discredit and dishonor and really usurp the kingdom of David. So he begins to lead this sort of rebellion. He begins to, to just scoff at David's rules and tries to literally bring David down. That's what we've been talking about for weeks. 
And so in 2 Samuel 18, the chapter before where we are today, it all culminates in this huge battle. There's a huge battle between the forces of David and the forces of Absalom. And it's in, uh, the, the chapter 18 tells us it's in this place called the Forest of Ephraim. And what happens is they're about to go to war and David tells his men, he wants to go fight too. And they're like, no, you, you're not going to go. And so what David tells his men, he says, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. So right before they go to war, he's like, take care of my boy. Okay? Which is strange because we're about to go fight. There's about to be this huge battle. And it is a huge battle, but David's army wins. But it was massive. Chapter 18 tells us that 20,000 soldiers die in the battle. But David's army is victorious. And Absalom, Ross talked about this last week, Absalom is on a mule, he's fleeing the scene, and the Bible says that he rides under this low-hanging branch or branches and gets caught in the branches. Now, when I was a kid, in the flannel graph, it was always his hair, okay, that got caught. Some versions say hair. Some versions just say he was caught, you know, about the shoulders and neck. And so Absalom gets caught in this thicket of branches, and his mule keeps riding, and he's hanging there. And so some of David's men find him, but they don't do anything to him because they remember what David said. Be gentle with the young man Absalom, my son, for my sake. And so they go find this guy named Joab, who's one of, who's one of David's boys, okay? This is one of his right-hand men. And they tell him, Absalom's hanging up in a tree. And Joab's like, well, what'd you do about it? And they're like, nothing. David told us not to do anything. And so chapter 18, that Joab gets three javelins, spears, and he goes to where Absalom's hanging from the tree, and he runs all three spears through Absalom's heart. He kills him. And then it says, more of the soldiers gather around, and they stab him too. So it's just this awful, I mean, it's almost like they're like, let's make sure Absalom is gone. And, and, and there's this drama of how David finds out there are these runners, and one runner runs, and then another runner runs. And David finally finds out that Absalom is dead. And that's where 2 Samuel 19 starts. That's where we're going to start. That's right. David has just found out. Okay? So let's look at verse 1. I'm going to read verse 1, 2, and 3 here. <clears throat> Joab was told, The king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning. Because on that day, the troops heard it said, the king is grieving for his son. The men stole into the city that day as men steal in who are ashamed when they flee from battle. So the terror of Absalom is done. So this, this guy who sought to bring David low, it's done. They've won the battle. This is, this is a man, Absalom, who literally ran David out of the kingdom. Ross t- told you about that last week. That David and his people have even fled outside the city. I mean, this guy nearly did it. He nearly did it. And now it's over. He's dead. He's, the, the kingdom of David has won. They're victorious. And David is at home crying. Absalom is bad news for David, all right? This is, this is a horrible thing. This has been an awful chapter of David's life, but it's also David's son. So they've won the victory, but he's also lost his son. And so he's grieving. He's David's son and he's dead. It's just another heartbreaking milestone for David. I mean, as we've gone through this series, I mean, David has had all kinds of stuff. He's had ups and downs, right? So we know the good stuff. He was a poet. He was a songwriter. He was a giant slayer. As a king, he brought the art back to Jerusalem. The Bible even says he was a man after God's own heart. There's also all these downs in David's life as well. He lived as an outlaw while Saul was trying to kill him. He had an affair. He killed 
the husband of the woman he had an affair with, after he repented and confessed, the child he bore from that affair died, and now another son is dead. This has been this horrible saga in David's life. He's nearly to the end of his life, and he's still having these horrible things happen. David is weeping over Absalom, and yet the whole army is ashamed. It just said that in verse 1 through 3, that they came back to town like an army that had been beaten. This army that's victorious, they've won, they've done it, Absalom is dead, they are ready to, to, to celebrate. And verse 3 says that they are ashamed. David is grieving for his son because he loves him. And yet, this is the same son that sought to destroy David. This thing that was awful and torturous and horrible and a threat to David is now done, and yet David still grieves. Here's what I want you to take from that. I want you to understand this is a messy, complicated thing. This moment that we're looking at in verse 1 through 3, it is extremely difficult. This is a man who has won the victory and lost the son. It is messy and complicated. Now look at verse 4. The king covered his face and cried aloud, O my son Absalom, O Absalom, my son, my son. Then Joab went into the house of the king and said, Today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and daughters and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You have made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. This is the ultimate intervention, okay? This is Joab walking up to his king. This is not a guy that you come at like this, okay? This is not a man that you kind of correct. And yet Joab walks in and he stages this intervention. He tells David, these men have fought for you. They, I mean, think about this. These are men who have risked their lives, probably lost friends, probably have injuries they're still nursing. They've been loyal to David. They followed him out into the outer realms. They went to this battle against Absalom and the forces of Israel. They've done all of this stuff, and David doesn't seem to care anything about it. Joab says, it looks like you wish Absalom were alive and we were dead. What Joab is telling David here, and this matters a whole lot. It's going to matter in a second even more. What, what Joab is telling David is that he has put a conspirator above his calling. So David is called to be king. That's what God built him to do. And yet David has exalted this man over his responsibilities as king. Joab is telling David that he's being idolatrous here. He says, you'd rather have him than us. You're putting him over us. David has chosen this, this grief and this one person over all of these other people. As best we can tell, he's not thanking God for the victory yet. He's not thanking his men. He is in his house, and he is sobbing. And Joab is telling him that this is not good. What Joab is telling David is that his idolatry is obvious. Hey, your men, your men see this, and I'm telling you that, that they can tell what's going on. He's telling David, your idolatry is obvious, and it's hurtful. It's hurtful. Look at the next verse, verse 7 and 8. This is what Joab says. Now go out and encourage your men. Here we go. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth till now. 
So the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. Meanwhile, the Israelites had fled to their homes. So Joab says, King, your idolatry is obvious and is hurtful. If you don't fix this, if you don't go and be the king right now, this will be worse than any of that other stuff you've ever endured. And the king does it. David does it. It works. He gets up and he goes and sits in the gateway. Now, as best we can tell, the best way to think about the gateway would be like a temporary throne. So Ross taught you last week about David and his people sort of fleeing, but there was still some sort of place where David would sit and sort of address the people. It's a place of respect. It's called the gateway here. We don't really know a lot about what it was, but it was David's chair, okay? And so what Joab says to him is, you got to go sit in the chair, David, because all these men, they're, they're about to leave you. This will be the worst thing that ever happened to you. Go and sit in the chair. So it's messy. It's complicated. We know that. And Joab has called him out on his idolatry. He says, your idolatry is obvious and it's hurtful. And then, then his encouragement to David is, go sit where God wants you to sit. Go be where God wants you to be. And David does it. And here's the amazing thing. If you go home and read 2 Samuel 19, you will find that it's a little while before David even addresses the army. Just his act of obedience of leaving the house and going and sitting at the gate, as soon as the men hear, they all start rallying around. Just one act of obedience of David going back and sitting in the role he's supposed to sit in. It's messy. It's complicated. David has been called out on his idolatry, and he's been told by his Joab, you need to go be where God wants you to be. So, what in the world does that mean? You're not a king. I'm not a king. I know I act like a king sometimes, but I'm not a king. You're not a king or queen. What can we gather from this? When we look at the life of David, I, I think a lot of us don't really think of ourselves like David. We, we, we certainly don't think of ourselves as the guy who killed the giant and ruled and just wrote awesome. He wrote the Psalms, you know. I'm a songwriter. I can't write the Psalms. It's already been, he did great. He's awesome. But we don't think of ourselves like that a lot of times. We think of ourselves like the other David, right? The David who just can't get his act together. This David that, that has all this trouble and he's sinful and he has all these consequences. And in fact, I think that some of us are even right now in the exact same spot that David is in in 2 Samuel 19. I think that there are probably some of us here today that are doing exactly what David did. There are some of us here that there is something in your life, a relationship, an addiction, an obsession, a dream of yours that nearly brought you down, nearly destroyed you. There are some of us here who have that, something in our past that we loved and wanted so bad and it nearly killed us and yet God brought us through. There are some of us here like that that God has seen us through, He has protected us, He has provided for us, and yet we still grieve because we can't get the thing we wanted. There are some of us that are doing that. There, 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 we might say, you know what, I know God's brought me through, I know God's protected me from stuff, but if I'm honest, I, I'm still mourning. I still wish I could have it both ways. The thing that wanted to kill you and distract you and destroy you. Mentally, you know that it's a good thing, that it's gone, but you find yourself still tied to it, still obsessed with it. You can't stop grieving for it. 
and your excessive woe and grief take up so much of your time, take up so much of my time, and it keeps me from bringing glory to God. It keeps me and keeps you from celebrating what God's done in your life. Listen, you are a living, breathing, walking miracle. Some of you shouldn't even be here today. Some of you shouldn't even be alive today. Some of you, God has so miraculously provided for you and rescued you and delivered you and brought you to this place and you walk around sad and mad that you didn't get it the way you wanted. Life does not turn out the way we want it to. We, we know this. And I am sorry for that. Listen, there are some of us who are right in the middle of learning that marriage is way harder than we thought it would be. There are some of us who have kids who are not living for God and we are doing everything we can. We are trying our best to be godly parents and our kids are just not doing it. There are some of us who battle thoughts of depression and darkness and fear. We wish we didn't have that. Listen, that, that is what it is living in a fallen, sinful world. A world that will never be as perfect as we want it to be. But I'm telling you something. You're here. You're here. You've got people around who love you and who cherish you and who can see God's work in you. I understand being heartbroken, believe me. But maybe, maybe, what if your grief is keeping you from glorifying God? Your life is messy and complicated like David's. But remember what happened next? Remember how Joab calls David out and he says, you know, your idolatry, we see it, it's obvious and hurtful. That, that's, that's what I'm going to talk to you about right now is the idolatry. Because listen, your idols are pretty easy to spot. My idols are pretty easy to spot. Spend an hour with me today, you'd know everything you need to know about me. You would. You'd know everything I love and you could go, I could see the stuff that guy probably idolizes in his life. I could spend an hour with you, I could probably tell. You, our idols are obvious. They are obvious and they are hurtful. God's protected you and provided you and he's protected me and he's provided for me. But the longer I stay in the ashes, the longer you stay in mourning over your past life, the more disconnected you'll become from the people who matter to you. Can I be Joab here? Can I stage an intervention in this room? This is like the easiest intervention ever, by the way. I've got a microphone and a spotlight. I'm on a raised platform. You're all out there in the dark. This is like the most non-confrontational intervention you've ever seen, but I'm going to do it anyway. If the people in your life matter to you, your, your children, your family, the people you work with, your friends, your neighbors, if those people matter to you, and if you are in that place, where you are grieving over dreams and obsessions and, and expectations that didn't come true, let me be Joab and tell you to shake off those ashes. Let go of that idol. Stop grieving for the things that tried to kill you and control you because your people will notice. If idolatry is obvious and hurtful, then God's glory will be obvious and beneficial there are people around you that if you were to let go of your idol, if you'd stop hugging the thing that you idolize, that the people around you would immediately see God's work in you. And I'm telling you, they would not say, wow, what a mighty woman of God. Or, oh, that guy's a giant of the faith. No, they would say, God's doing a miracle in that person. They would see it. And that's what you want. Don't you want to bring God glory? You do. You know how I know that? Because you're here. I mean, unless someone dragged you here this morning, which does happen, right? 
Some of the kids are like, yeah, I didn't want to come. My parents dragged me, all right? But, but the most of you are here because you want to be here. You could be anywhere else. You might have walked in thinking, ah, I'm not really feeling it, but I'm going to do this church thing. I know it's what I... No, no, I'm telling you, you're here on purpose. And you're here because you want a life that would bring God glory. That's why you're here. And 2 Samuel 19 is telling you how to do that. And for some of you and for me, it's convicting me about the things I still idolize. The, the old dreams, the old things that I'm so sad I can't get. Remember what Joab says, though. He tells David, all right, king, you've got to go sit in the gateway. Go be where God wants you to be. Go sit in the chair God wants you to sit in. What's amazing about that is that David just gets up and he just goes, right? He just walks and he just sits in the gates and the soldiers begin to come. It's a simple act of obedience. Yes, I'll go be where God wants me to be. If you keep reading past verse 7 and 8, you'll find out. Ross Schrader said this to me last week, which I thought was so brilliant. I, 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 and at least in the, in the service where I was sitting back there, I wish, you, I wish he would have told everybody this because I think it was so great because he said, you know, David sort of leaves kind of like George Washington, you know, as kind of the, the first awesome guy, but he has to come back as Abe Lincoln. He has to come back and rebuild the kingdom. If you, if you read, David has a lot of work to do, but it's the simple act of obedience, of being where God wants him to be, that changes everything. As soon as he does that, the men start coming back. Joab tells him, go and be where God wants you to be. Life is messy and it's complicated. And King, your idolatry is obvious and it's hurtful. And God wants you to go be where you're supposed to be. He wants you to go be what you're supposed to be. Go sit in the chair you're supposed to sit in. And that's what God is telling you. God is telling you that you, through the, through the inspiration of his word, he is telling you that you need to be where you're supposed to be. Go be where God wants you. Sit in the chair that God wants you to sit in. Be the thing that God wants you to be. And some of you already know what that is. Some of you, as soon as you hear me talking about this, deep down inside, you've got like this, this constant cringe because you know exactly what God's been calling you to do. And you don't want to let go of the other stuff. And I, I am telling you, if you know you better go. If you know what God's calling you to do, I am telling you that 2 Samuel 19 should remind you and encourage you that when you will obey the Father, He will do mighty things for you. If you know, go. If you don't know, maybe you're like, you know, Todd, I think I'm, I think I'm hanging on to some stuff, but I, I don't know where to go or, or what to do. Well, that's simple. You need a Joab. You need a Joab in your life. You need somebody who'll be able to come at you a little bit and encourage you, but also speak the hard truth. And you have Joabs in your life. You, you may think, ah, oh, well, see, that's a problem, Todd. I'm not, not real connected. I don't have a lot of Joabs in my life. I'm here to tell you, you're sitting in a room full of Joabs. I, I think if we ended today, and, and if I prayed and I, and I closed, and if you walked around this room asking someone, anyone, hey, I'm having a tough time knowing where God wants me to be in my life, would you be, would you help me? Would you pray for me? Would you be my Joab? It'd take you less than 30 seconds to find somebody who'd do that. Yeah, there's going to be one or two awkward people like, I don't know you, get away from me. But I guarantee you, the third or fourth person you ask is going to say, absolutely, let's pray right now. You are surrounded by people in your life who can tell you, who can encourage you, who can pray for you. 
you have got Joabs all around you who could help you go be where God wants you to be. If you don't know, ask a Joab and give that Joab permission. Tell them what you're dealing with. Maybe even you go, this is 2 Samuel 19, says that you can come at me. I want you to be my Joab, and I want you to come at me. But I'll also say this. There are some of you who are hearing this, and you think, yeah, this feels like me, but you're not a Christian. Maybe you're thinking, I, this sounds good, but this feels like it's, it's just for people who've already jo- you know, joined the Christian club or whatever. I'm telling you that it is not. If you are hanging on to addictions and to relationships and to obsessions that are killing you, I am here to tell you, that surrendering your, surrendering your life to Jesus will bring you more peace and purpose than you could possibly imagine. God sent his son to shed his blood for the sins of the world, for mine and for yours. And there is no sin in your life bigger than him. If you don't know him, you can know him. It's not going to make your life perfect from now until the rest of all time, but I will tell you something. Jesus can set you free. He can give you freedom. If you know, go. If you don't know, ask somebody. I'm going to end today. I told you at the beginning that this has been really convicting for me, and it has. This, this text has been super convicting. Uh, and so I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you a little story, story time with Uncle Todd here. And um, I'm going to tell you for two reasons. One is because I just want to be authentic with you. Because this is what God's Word should do. Regardless of who's on the platform or who isn't, God's Word, it's supposed to convict us. It's supposed to challenge us. It's supposed to make us more like Jesus. And so this one's hitting me really hard. The second reason I want to tell you this is because I think this is a testament to the grace and mercy of God of how He consistently draws us back to Himself. So here's the deal. I love songwriting. Okay, I love writing songs. It's probably my favorite thing to do. And I write a lot of songs. Some of you know... We sing some of the songs here that I write, but I write all kinds of songs. I mean, I write worship songs and country songs and blues songs and sad songs and silly songs. I got all kinds of songs. They're not, they're not very good, but I write a lot of them. And here's the deal. Ever since I've been very young, I had this dream that I wanted to be a published songwriter. Ever since I was a very young man, that I had this dream in my mind that there were going to be, I was going to write these songs, and there were going to be people... Uh, in the music biz that would hear my songs and love them so much that they would put them on CDs and they would play them on the radio and they would sing them in their churches and that, and that I'd get these, you know, mysterious royalty checks in the mail. And, you know, that, that was a dream of mine. And a few years ago, that happened. I had a song I co-wrote, co-wrote with a friend and this group recorded it. And it was amazing. They put it on a CD and I was, I mean, floating. I was so excited because I thought, this is it. I've done it, you know. Took me a while, but look, everybody, you know. And so what began to happen is, is, is that song gets put on a CD, and all of a sudden I have all these publishers, these people in the music biz who are sort of emailing me, saying, hey, you know, if you got more songs, you know, send them in. And I thought, this is it. This is my dream, you know. All the haters told me I couldn't do it. Now look. Now who's answering emails from publishers? And so I start sending in songs. I mean, song after song after song, and I'm reading websites, and I'm listening to podcasts, and I'm calling friends, and I'm looking for song ideas, and I am doing all the songs. And, and the publisher are like, oh, great, more, more, more. And then eventually, it kind of falls off. You know, the, the interest kind of wanes, because probably my songs aren't weren't good enough. And the interest wanes, and I double down. I go even harder. Now I'm sending more songs every week. Now I'm reading more websites. Now I'm listening to 
more podcasts. Now I'm devoting more of my free time to writing songs. And they still don't respond, and and still nothing happens. And then I go even harder. Then I'm trying to find out, well, who are some other people that need songs? What what, what kind of songs? Polka? Should I write polka? I mean, I am obsessed with this thing that, that is so close, and I've had this little taste of it. And I will tell you, just a few years ago, God had to deliver me from that. And He did. Eventually, I just crumbled under the weight of that. And God very lovingly brought me back and said, Todd, you know where you're supposed to be. You know what you're supposed to be doing. You do that. You be obedient in those things, and I'll manage the rest. And I was grateful for that. I was grateful for that. That's not the real authentic part. Here comes the real authentic part. In October, I released a record. It was called Joy, available on iTunes now. And I... I was really proud of it, and I put a lot of work into it, and um, it, it was a really fun record. It had, like, some country stuff and some blue stuff, and, you know, and it, it didn't sell very well, and, I, and I, I didn't like that. And somehow I got connected with this publisher, a new publisher. I hadn't talked to a publisher in years. And he's like, I love these songs. Would you mind if I signed them and tried to pitch them to artists? And I'm like, about time, yeah, you know. And so he began to give me all this positive feedback, and I began to write... More and more and more. This is just since October. And he's got these artists, and they're going to record my songs. And I'm telling you, this is recent. I'm trying to be as honest as I can here. And a, and a few weeks ago, I'm talking to my wife, and I'm talking about songwriting. Bless her heart, you know. And I'm just like, well, I think they need this, but this style, you know, maybe I could pay for a demo, and I'm just going on and on. And my wife just kind of just nonchalantly goes, you know, wow, you, you are really into this. I'm like, well, yeah, I mean, I've made it. I mean, I need to do this, and I need to go with this. And... And she says this statement, and she says, yeah, but, you, you know, you're talking about this more than you like talk about our kids or, or anything. And it made me mad. I didn't know why, but it made me mad. And I kind of shrugged it off, you know. I didn't tell her I was mad, but we've been married 20 years. She knows when I'm mad. And the next week, I, I have a song I'm excited about, and I send it to a songwriter friend of mine. And, he, and we're texting back and forth. He's like, hey, this is good. And, you know, I'm talking about what I wanted to do with the song. And he's like, hey, would you, are you ever going to, like, just up and move to Nashville? And I'm like, no, you're crazy. I'm 41 years old. I work at this great church. I have this great life. My, we love Tyler. I feel like I have so much purpose in, in my life. No, that's crazy. Why would I move to Nashville? This is a week later. And my friend goes, because you talk about this more than most people up here talk about. And that made me even madder. And one week later, Ross goes, hey, would you preach on the 29th? And I say, yeah. And he's like, well, look through this. And I open up 2 Samuel 19, and I see what David's doing, and I realize that's me. That's me. I've got all kinds of stuff that I obsess over and dream about and worry about and wish I could have. And I'm telling you that it will consume me and you've got stuff that will consume you too. The reason I tell you that is that I thought I beat this four years ago and it's back, but God in His grace keeps drawing me back. I don't want you to feel guilty. I want you to feel grateful that you feel guilty, that God is convicting you and drawing you back. I don't know what that thing is and it may not apply to everybody, but there are some of you here who have got to let go of some obsession something that has you completely wrapped up. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to close with prayer. And I want to encourage you just to take time 
and pray before the Lord. We're actually going to be quiet for just a minute. I'm going to give you time to pray and to do whatever business with God you need to do. And then I'm going to pray to close. And when I'm done and I say amen, you're dismissed. The band's not coming up. We'll just play a little music on the speaker and you can go. So we're almost done. I'm not going to belabor that or try to over-emotionalize it, but I, I want you to take time and ask God, God, where do you want me? What do you want me to be? Where do you want me to go? What chair do you need me to sit in? God has grace and purpose for you. If you need to confess, then you confess. But just know that He is your loving Father who wants to use you to glorify Himself. Let's bow. Let's just be quiet before the Lord. Let's just talk to Him on our own. And then I'll close us with prayer.